special guest who I've been looking forward to having here at Connection for a long time. Uh, some of you may know him as Dale Beaver, others of you may know him as Adam, our guitarist dad. Um, <laughs> Dale's coming to us from Evansville, Indiana tonight, where he is a senior pastor at CFC Christian Fellowship Church. He's been there for about 10 years and the senior pastor for what, about three or four? Yeah, about three. And uh, Dale is originally from Kentucky. Yeah. You have four boys? Yes. <laughs> and uh, this is fun. Before Dale was a pastor, well, I guess he was a pastor in this role too, but he was a chaplain for motor racing outreach on a NASCAR race circuit. So uh, I got to travel to some sweet places. Before we came here, I used to go to Bristol Motor Speedway. If you ain't rubbing, you ain't racing. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Dale, we're so thankful to have you here. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. That's good.
And she said, Dale Beaver, I really think God is doing some great things with you. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit if one day if you're a pastor. I'd shared that with nobody. And uh, she just out of the blue said that. And I will, her name was Gillis Baker. And I will ever be thankful to her as a Sunday school teacher. Uh, you know, uh, those of you that need secondary ed majors or anybody going to be a teacher, go, I mean, it really, really is true. It really, really is true that your words to a child can shape their lives. And I probably would have ended up being a pastor, but I can tell you I was more solidified because someone outside my family took the time to stop and say, I see God at work in your life. Christ is at work in your life. And I just, those of you that are going into being school teachers and, and working with kids, I mean, you have my heartfelt admiration because I believe that's a calling uh, equally as important as, as being, a, being a shepherd, being a pastor. So, um, uh, had the best of both worlds. Had grandparents who was mellow, and had rebellious parents. I had, I, had, I had the kids of rebellion. They got married right out of high school. My dad smoked non-filtered pell mells. Kept them rolled up in his shirt sleeve like the guy from Greece. Um, if you remember those, I mean, it's, those those people really did live in wealthy earth back in the day. Um, <laughs> life, and, life was all about the car and the horsepower. And the girl, and you married your high school sweetheart, and that's kind of where I'm from. That's the way life was, and that was my mom and my dad. Um, I can remember uh, eating a teething biscuit. That's my earliest memory, my earliest memory. Those little teething biscuits you give kids, they don't even give them that anymore, but they're messy as all get out. And they're like a cookie, and, and, and they're hard enough to where a kid can teeth on it. And, I, and my, earliest remember, my earliest memory is sitting in the file, firewall, firewall area of the engine compartment of the 1955 Chevrolet that my dad had milled the heads on. He was tuned for a drag race that evening. Uh, my earliest memory. I can remember sitting in the passenger side of my, of my father's uh, 67 Chevelle Supersport 396. And I'll never will forget the day that we, we peeled out of the neighborhood onto our little stretch of highway there. My dad went from first to second with a white ball shifter first transmission. He came out of set first into second. And I can remember pinning against the seat and the floor mat in front of me rolled triples back. It was the most awesome feeling I've ever had in my life. That man back there knows what I'm talking about. So I have always never had, did that. That's right, that's right, that's right. I've always had a love for uh, for cars and horsepower and one of the things that just absolutely grinds my rear end is that we now live in a world where you can't find an old nineteen sixties car for less than sixty grand it seems like. So it's like I finally got to the place where I've got, you know, enough money to buy a car that would have back then been worth five to ten grand, and now they're sixty and seventy grand. Stupid, but all of that to say, all of that to say, uh, is that I've always had a real appreciation for cars and racing, uh, and, and and had a ball with it. Never knew, I never knew being a pastor would afford me the opportunity to to, to go on the motorsport circuit, but it, but it did. And uh, again, through the connections you make. That, that word connection for your group here is so powerful uh, because it really, really is true that the relationships you have here and the relationships that you make as you move through this season of your life really do carry forward. Uh, and, and, and it's amazing how God will work in the hearts and minds of people uh, as you move through life. Um, I've had to call people that I knew back in high school uh, and apologize to them for things that I did in high school. I've had to uh, call people and thank them for their contribution to my life because I forgot I completely bypassed them and overstepped when they were young, when I was younger, and called them back. And so the connections that I've made through high school and college, those I, now that I'm, I'm in my 50s, you say that now that you're over 50, 
I'm, now that I'm in my 50s, um, those things, man, really, really come home to roost. And you really, really stop and meditate on those things more and, and becoming more and more grateful for them. So for, I knew I wanted to be a pastor when I was nine. Uh, went through the motions. My father looked at me because we were all coal miners. My, my granddad, my granddad looked at me. I never will forget. He put the fear of God in me about the whole ordeal. He looked at me and he said, listen, he said, you're the first grandson. And he said, I will help you go to college. But if I, if I even come close to hearing you talk about going down the mines to dig coal, he said, you don't want to know what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> and so uh, I said, yes, sir. And uh, he said, all of your family, Dale Beaver, all of your family, has mined coal from the far, dug coal from the far back as we can trace it. And he said, you're not going to do that. And so I went to college, got a business degree. My dad said, I'm going to pay for this deal. You're going to do what I'm going to tell you to do. You're going to go to college. You're going to get a business degree. I said, oh, why? I'm not going to be a businessman. Well, that's fine. You'll, you can do something, but you're going to get a business degree. So I went to college at Western, got a business degree, and knew. And Dad said, once you get out of college with that, you'll go to seminary. You can. And so I did. Ended up at Dallas Seminary. Like I said, started working part-time uh, at Interstate Batteries while I was in Dallas. And I talked to Adam about this a lot. And they, you know, I don't... Man, as much as you guys can get plugged into doing part-time stuff while you're in school, whether it's serving or working, I'm telling you that, the, again, the dividends go beyond that measly minimum wage paycheck you may be earning. I'm telling you, it really, really does. Um, began to sit and eat lunch with a guy in the cafeteria because I worked in the evenings at Interstate Batteries. Had no idea who the guy, this guy was. He was just a humble guy. He was, he was the meekest guy I've ever met in my life. Um, and y'all been talking about Sermon on the Mount, right? Right? We've been talking about Kingdom of God. Yeah, we were in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so, have y'all talked about meekness yet? Have y'all talked specifically about meekness yet, Josiah? Not specifically. That's fine. Because I, so I want to share a little bit about that tonight. This, this guy that I was sitting with in that lunchroom uh, just began to develop a relationship with me. We talked about marriage. We talked about family. We talked about what it looked like to be a man of God. His name is Carlos Sepulveda. And I never forget the day I looked down at my check and saw his signature. And I thought, for crying out loud, this guy is the CFO of Interstate Batteries, one of the you know, Fortune 500 companies here in Dallas, and he's eating Taco Bell with me at 6 o'clock in the, in, in, in the room in there. And he just began to mentor me a little bit. And uh, 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 by the time he got finished with me, I was ready to meet my wife. I was ready to meet Adam's mom. I was not ready to meet Adam's mom until he got finished with me. Uh, part of being from Kentucky is there are some limitations. Uh, about uh, about what it means to be in a relationship with a woman, and I needed a lot more help than what I got. I, great models for commitment and loyalty and faithfulness, but not a whole lot of not a whole lot of emotional vernacular to be able to carry on a conversation with a woman. Uh, I've got pictures of me even that bespoke my. It was awful. Uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, by the time he got finished with me, I really did feel prepared uh, to get married and. and Met, met, like I said, met Adam's mom, and, and sure enough, didn't know, I always knew I wanted to be in ministry, be a pastor, and somehow be connected to a, a, some sort of unconventional ministry. Maybe be in a college town like this. I always thought it would be really cool to be in a college town and be a pastor with college students. That'd be awesome. And, but, but doing un- non-conventional things, and my, you know, my love for horsepower and all that was around it, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't dissipate at all. So, um, after I was out of seminary a couple years ago, I got a phone call. <laughs> from one of the guys that I knew at Interstate Batteries that I'd, that I'd gotten connected to is my relationship with my mentor there. And his name was Jim Cody, and Jim called me and Jim said, hey, I'm working with an organization named Motor Racing Outreach, and I want to talk to you about this. 
because I think you'd be a great fit. And so through that connection and those relationships, I sat down and began to talk with Jim Cody about what it would be like to go on the NASCAR racing circuit as their chaplain and as their pastor. Now, I'm in the little town of Dixon, Kentucky, which is a little coal mining town down in Kentucky, passionate church of about 125 people, most of them coal miners, some of them educators, some of them coal truck drivers. Blue collar, a little bit of white collar smattered around in there. And it was it was a really, it was a great experience. But after three years, I left them and started traveling on the road. And so Adam and his brother, uh, before, I mean, they're barely walking and talking and jumbling around. We climbed this motorhome, this 35-foot motorhome with dual slide outs, and we began to follow the circus that is NASCAR. We went from racetrack to racetrack. We'd get there on Thursday nights, and we'd set up our motorhome at every racetrack. And I would get up. And my wife would work with the community center there. We had a little community center with all the drivers and the team owners that were traveling with the teams would come with their kids. And my wife began to do like little Sunday school activities on the weekend with these kids. And I'd just make my rounds through the garage. And I'd begin to develop relationships with, uh, with crewmen and with drivers. Most people don't know this about NASCAR. But NASCAR, the, the uniqueness of NASCAR is that the, t the same teams that compete against each other are exclusive to that one particular series, and they travel from we believe the same people. So I have a traveling community. We're the same town, just in a different neighborhood, every week, if you can imagine that. All right? Uh, it's the highest paid circus in the world. That's what it is. Really. Really. My, my, my mother said, yeah, he's kind of like a carnival chaplain. Exactly. Kind of what I do. I'm working with the guys that spread the pixie dust on the tilt of world. So, uh, so anyway... So anyway, uh, traveling week to week, and then I'd get up and I'd go in the garage and, and just develop relationships with those guys. And I learned really quick that those guys had sacrificed and suffered a lot to get to where they are. And, and a lot of them, they, they became rich and famous overnight. Uh, and it was just really crazy to watch some of these guys who, uh, you know, this one guy, I, I swear, ladies, the handsomest man I've ever known in my life. I mean, I'm pretty secure in my manhood, and I was always intimidated by him. He's a race car driver by the name of Casey Kane. And I've never seen Casey. Yeah, I've never seen Casey Kane. Uh, she took a deep breath. Uh, because she needed it. Uh, because he, uh, because there, there's something just, my wife, my wife, my wife never talked about, ever talked about other men in front of me. She's like, I could just put him on a shelf. And just bring it. Uh, but it was so sweet. To, 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 it was so sweet. You know, just as an older man kind of walking with Casey. Casey never had a girlfriend. That's unbelievable. But he never had. He'd given his life to racing. He'd been in this little place in, in, in out west in Washington. Uh, didn't know the Lord from Justin Bieber. I mean, he didn't know anybody. He didn't know anybody. And, uh, you know, uh, these guys would ask me questions like, okay, so what does Jesus have to do with Easter? And... Uh, Book of Philippians. I went to Barnes and Noble, and nobody has ever heard of the Book of Philippians. And I mean, those kind of questions. It was just really that kind of really serious. I'm not lying at all. No exaggeration. Just very, very basic. Um, and uh, and so just kind of helping them walk along and introducing them to Christ and helping them keep a check on their ego. Because you can imagine, race car drivers, they carry a lot of swagger, right? And one of the things that that, that's one, that, that was one of the things that I, that I felt as a man was really challenging in that environment because I, because I wanted to meet them at their level of swagger, right? And I'm not a man of a lot of swagger, but, but every man wants to have this level of swagger. And I wanted to kind of meet them, be able to relate to them on that level, and I never really could. Um, and they, they appreciated me for that, but at the same time, they were very skeptical of, of what Christ was asking them to do. 
And so I was able to walk in this real microcosm of, of guys uh, who were testing what it meant to count the cost of being, of being a disciple. Have you ever done that? My guess is that once you get to college, even more so now than even when it was when I was in college, you're doing the math on being a disciple of Christ in this environment like you perhaps have never done it before. I know Adam's doing it, and we'll talk a lot about it, and I'm sure you are too. And what does it mean to walk on this campus as a disciple of Christ, and what's that costing you? What does it mean for you to share your faith just as meekly and mildly as you can? What does it mean for you to enter in discussions when people are questioning um, your integrity as well as your faith? G.K. Chesterton, he was this great writer. Anybody read Orthodoxy? Oh, come on. What do they give you guys nowadays to read? You read it? I read it. Okay, okay. There's your assignment right there. Go out and buy G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy and begin reading it. My brother back there will agree. All right? Chesterton wrote a hundred years ago that we misplaced in society this, this, this highest virtue of humility. We've misplaced it. We've moved it from the seat of ambition where it should be. We should be mostly humble with our ambitions, and we've moved it to our convictions. The world is asking us to be most humble about our convictions, which is completely backwards to what the Word of God tells us to do. We hold our ambitions in check. We've applied our humility, Chesterton says, to our ambitions, and we never... We never compromise. We never should feel like we need to be modest about our convictions. And, and so bringing that in this academic environment that you're in and bringing that obviously in a culture environment that we are in this country, my guess is, is that if you've not gotten serious about counting the cost of discipleship, you, you need to be. Absolutely need to be. And uh, that's been my prayer for, for Adam and for you guys as you're up here in school. That's my number one prayer for you is that you will be able to measure that and be able to take delight in God's pleasure um, as, as you count that cost and you're willing to make that exchange when necessary. Even being here tonight, when it's senior night, and I use playing the last game of the season, I mean, that's 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 a commitment, right? You might say, well, we're going to take it anyway. Well, yeah, but, I mean, you're here. You could be doing something else, right? Well, when, when, when I was, uh, just, just I want to talk to you about this one, this one virtue of, the kingdom, this kingdom lifestyle virtue that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one that I've wrestled with perhaps more than, than any other. Um, being from Kentucky, you've got to know how to ride a horse, right? I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just a given. When you're little, you, 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 you're going to go up the street. If you don't have one yourself, then you're going to ride a horse. And so from the time you're four or five years old, especially as a boy, you're going to, you know, you long for the time when you put your boot to start seeing your leg over a horse and, and take off. And that's just, that's just the way it's supposed to be. That's the relationship you have with the horse, right? The horse is supposed to do that for you. It's just the way it is. Well, as you get older, as you ride long enough, you do it long enough to where, you know what? Some horses throw you off. And it's not pleasant. I mean, there are places in my life when I've been thrown off a horse. I don't really remember what happened after I was in the air. And, and it's like, well, you just you get back on the horse. And there's this level of respect that you get to develop for the horse. It's just crazy. And I remember my younger days looking at the horse with that, you know, kind of chomping on its bit. And that horse looking at me kind of dismissively saying, hey, how's it going? Go ahead. Get on my back, you little punk. And, and I'll, I'll take you for a ride, you know. But to move in a, as a teenager and to look at and to look at that horse, and it's a different horsepower. I'm fascinated by horsepower in cars, but I begin to get fascinated by, by the real horses and their power. And it was interesting to look at at these beasts 
not, not just kind of taking me nonchalantly, but almost giving me a look as I got to be 13 or 14 as if to say, you have no idea, do you? That I could just squash you like a bug if I wanted to. But you know what? I'm going to let you get on my back. And I'm going to serve you. And not only am I going to serve you, I'm going to let you guide me by the stinking bit that's in my mouth. And, and God, began to, God began to work on me that that's what genuine humility and meekness looks like. That's what, I, that's what I've been after in my, in my life. What, is it, what does it look like to really... I have trouble with that. I, I, want, I, want to, I want to know that Christ is forming meekness in me, humility, that kind of humility in me. And to be able to walk around those NASCAR drivers, man, man, if there's any guys on the face of the earth that need to discover what humility and meekness is like, it was those guys. It was to have that kind of influence and that kind of power and actually send the vehicle that produced that kind of power to be able to do so with a humble attitude and a humble approach. And so um, Jesus gets to that place in, in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And that word, that word we translate meekness or humility is prouse. The Greek word is prouse, and it has it's an equestrian term. It's a term that you would you would use for a stallion that could squash you like a bug, and yet is gentle enough to that would let a, a child ride it. That's what it means to be meek. It's that kind of strength and that kind of power, but restrained for the purpose of service. And I don't know about you, but that that that's that's the elusive virtue. That's the that's the part of me. I man, I know what it's like to be poor in spirit. I know what it's like to be completely bankrupt and ruined of soul. I know what it's like to approach the Savior and have that kind of attitude. I also want to know what it's like to mourn that condition. And to mourn that condition, Jesus says, you'll be comforted. And flowing right out of that, the tears of the mourning give way to this, this humble submission. And that's what meekness looks like. That's what that virtue of the kingdom looks like. And so I just want to mess with perhaps your favorite verse. Anybody here have a mom or dad put Philippians 13, 4.13 over your bassinet or your, your baby bed when you were growing up? I mean, you know, you know that, that tends to be you know, the most popular verse. And really, I think parents unknowingly put that verse above their kid's bed going, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as a result of that, I'm claiming this verse for a scholarship, a basketball scholarship. My kid, and my kid, who may not be able to clear four inches, is going to get a basketball scholarship at IU. I'm claiming that. Why? Because Philippians 4.13 says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And NASCAR drivers fell into that trap as much as anybody did. I mean, it was amazing how they gravitated. I grew up, the favorite verse was John 3.16. All the NASCAR drivers, they wanted Philippians 4.13. Because Philippians 4.13 meant that I could win every race through Him who gives me strength. That's how they applied that. And it was so misapplied. And I think, you know what? Even though I know better as a believer, I still find my lack of meekness and my lack of humility getting in the way of even how I apply that verse. The context is, is this. The Apostle Paul is writing to Philippians. They, they're writing to the church of Philippi. He's giving them a gift. He said, I rejoice, verse 10 of chapter 4. He said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, Paul says. And I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
Abundance and need. Here's the verse. Wait for it. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now I saw y'all carrying a bunch of ESVs in here tonight, and that's why I read that. But I want to read that to you just quickly again in the ESV before we go. Paul says here again in verse 11, Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing, and I know how to live with everything. NASCAR drivers need to hear that. And I'm guessing the NASCAR driver and you need to hear that too. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or whether it's with an empty stomach, whether with plenty or whether with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me the strength to do it. As Christ is formed in me, the Apostle Paul says, then I can truly be meek. And interesting, isn't it? In the Sermon on the Mount, here's why you pay me the big bucks in one third night. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There's a duality to that, right? There's a kingdom lifestyle that Christ is calling us to live with now as we count the cost of discipleship and as we follow him on a college campus. There is the, there's the kingdom lifestyle that you and I can embrace, even though we're not fully in the returning Savior. We're in the risen Savior's kingdom. We're not in the returning Savior's kingdom yet. That is yet to come. That is, there is a confident hope that we have in the second coming of our Savior. But while we're here, while we're here, the meek still inherit the earth. And the meek inherit the earth by being content with the provision of Christ. So key, so critical to being humble and being meek. So key and so critical to doing everything as Christ gives you strength to do it. What Paul is saying here is, he's not saying, okay, you guys that can't clear four inches, you claim this verse and you'll get a scholarship to IU for basketball. That's not what he's saying there. Paul is saying that as I live meekly in this world, content in this world, with a full stomach or with an empty stomach, in plenty or in want, is the way we say it down in Kentucky. Although, if you ever get married Kentucky ladies, remember that there's a vow in your wedding to where the pastor will look at you and go, in plenty or want. And you'll have to repeat that. Say it just like he says it. We've, we've re-tweaked re that to where you don't have to say it in plenty or in want anymore. But Paul is saying, in plenty or in want, I've learned how to live and be content. And so what it means to possess the kingdom of the earth as it is, in this state, is to live humbly under the authority of God, content with the resources and provision that He provides. And so, as a disciple, that's that's what I'm asking Christ to form in me right now more than ever. Because even to this day, I will tell you that that meekness is not something that I gravitate toward. That's not something that I long to be. And yet, I think it's because when I was young, people read the definition. So, uh, that's where I am and, and uh, would love to hear where you guys are. I mean, what are your thoughts? Uh, what's going on with you? Any questions? Yes, Casey Kane really is that handsome. <laughs> Part of left. I don't know if he's married yet or not. But, but, uh, but yeah. Got any NASCAR questions? Got any? <laughs> <laughs> so,
So what, yes. does, what does he mean when he says inherit the earth? Yeah, I think that's what he means. I think what he's saying is that when the meek will inherit the earth, what it means is, is that, 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 that you think about it. Uh, where Chesterton goes back and Chesterton says, our humility has been removed from our ambition and placed on our conviction. Uh, I think what Paul is, or what Jesus is, is saying to us there is, is that as you and I live meekly and humbly in this world, what we are doing is we are surrendering the drive to step to the front of the line. We're surrendering uh, the drive to step on people and over people to get to the kingdom of this world. To, to make it in this world. Um, if you look at meekness in the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Moses, all of those guys willing to let God be their defender and being willing to submit the drive that I believe every man and woman has to be protected and to be uh, aggressive uh, and ambitious in a way that would secure the earth for ourselves. Jesus says, when you're willing to live under the authority of God and, and, and place that ambition under his, his kingly domain, then, 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 then what you long to have, Jesus says, you will have. And I think Paul, the Apostle Paul demonstrates that for us when he says at that moment, I've learned, I've learned what it means to be content in plenty or in want, full stomach, empty stomach. I, I have the world by the tail. I have the earth by the tail because I understand that is all under the authority of God. And that as I am willing to walk under the authority of God, I have the earth. And again, we don't lose sight. I, I don't believe we ever lose sight. Part of being able to endure the, the want and the lack that we feel like we have to endure sometimes in this world, I think what Jesus is saying in that moment is that, okay, there's also a confidence that we have that there is a kingdom that's coming. There's a kingdom that's coming. So you and I can live, even in, in this world that's upside down from the kingdom at this point, we can live in this world under the authority of God and content with his provision and in that way inherit the earth. Does that make sense? And I think that's what, exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. And that hardly misapplied and misinterpreted Philippians 4.13. Anybody else? In Kentucky, we, we you know we, we color the pages in our books, you know, all of that, right? We we have colored books. That's what that's how we go to school. So if anybody has any pages that I need to color for you, you can let me know. Dale, I got one more question for you. Yeah. If you could if you could go back and tell your twenty two year old about to graduate from college self one thing about how to pursue um, the virtue of meekness in your walk of faith in Christ, what's one thing you wish you would have known then? Everything that I was working for, whether it was the right girl, the right job, the secure place of having arrived, um, I, I never, I never seemed to, in my own strength, to be able to close those deals. And I wish I could tell my 22-year-old self, quit wasting time, flexing on that, and be about the business of walking with Christ trusting his provision for you and understanding that in his provision, all of that's met. That the earth really is yours. Uh, it's just there for you to find contentment in. And that, that was the thing. I was so, I was so lost in my discontent uh, in my college years. 
and very immature. Like I said, I, you know, part of that is just God's grace that 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 nobody, nobody, no, I didn't have to. I think if somebody had told me that, that's the thing, Josiah. If somebody had told me that at 22, I'm not sure I would have been mature enough to even <laughs> understood it or been able to apply it. So there's hope for you, <laughs> <laughs> um, because God's grace is His long suffering with us on that. But yeah, I wish, I wish I could have. Under, I wish I, somebody had told me that, and I wish I would have understood it and been able to apply it, because I wasted a lot of time trying to get the earth on my own. And uh, God, God was there faithfully all along. If I would have just trusted His provision and been content with that. Yeah, I wish I would have been sharp enough to land real fly out. There's hope for you, really. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Thank y'all.